Hello everyone, thank you for your patience whilst I took some time to work on the book's edits. I'm back now, uh, nice to see you all, you're all looking fab, with a four minutes of threads episode, because I know that tends to be one of the favourites. But all our niceties end there because we are at a very distressing segment of the film. We ended our last four minutes with a struggling, valiant Mr Kemp forcing his way through the ruins of Sheffield, trying to find his wife a drink of water. Both of our families, the Kemps and the Becketts, have been splintered. When the bomb dropped, we know the Kemps were all scattered anyway. Uh, Mum, Dad and Michael were at home, but Jimmy was out at work at the joinery and Alison had been sent out to the shops. The Becketts, by contrast, were all snug and together. You might wonder if that's a comment from the film's writer, Barry Hines, about class. We know he was a writer very concerned with class throughout his career. Uh, the Becketts, being middle class, had the what you might call the luxury of being at home because the wife didn't have to work and the dad is a boss or manager at the steelworks, so we can assume he can set his own rules and times, doesn't need to clock in and out at fixed times. And Ruth, well, she was able to casually say she was going to phone in sick to work due to her pregnancy and morning sickness. And yes, I call that a luxury because I know that when I was doing the 9 to 5 in various call centres, it was often frowned upon to phone in sick. I even recall uh, one employer, a bank, I won't say which one, who phoned me um, after I'd called in sick to ask me to come in regardless. I can still remember the manager on the phone. It would be a real help to us, Julie, if you could just come in. And so I went, even though I was sick. (laughs) Because there was a subtle threat beneath the friendly, cooing phone call from the manager. But not so with Ruth. She can just say, oh, I'm not going in today. And if she got the sack for it, well, so what? She lives at home and has parents who are well off. So my point is, being middle class allowed the Becketts to be together. Whereas our working class Kemps were scattered, either out at work or sent out to grab the last few tins on the supermarket shelves. And then the Kemps, well, they splintered even more. The relative flimsiness of their ordinary little terraced home means that their water supply is quickly cut off by the blast and we assume they have no stockpiled water which forces Mr Kemp out whereas the Beckett's are um, relatively secure in their big roomy basement with its sturdy sheltering stone walls and its supplies and when Ruth does leave the home to try and find Jimmy she does so out of choice She has not been forced out like poor Mr Kemp. Oh, poor Mr Kemp. He has been returned to a traditionally male role at last. Sent out to hunt and gather. We've spoken in previous episodes about how he was made redundant. Lost his job, lost his role as provider and chief breadwinner. And how the film makes this a very clear to us by showing him in earlier scenes dashing around in the kitchen wearing an apron making dinner for the wife who is now of course the breadwinner the main breadwinner well here he is restored to the role of provider 
out battling to secure water for his remaining family. But of course, it's a hopeless endeavour. But he tries, he never gives in. I love Mr Kemp. He reminds me of my late granddad, Jimmy. He had a manual job, he was a postman, up and out of the house at 4am every weekday. And he retired before my granddad, so he, like Mr Kemp, would always be in the kitchen, busy, always busy. When Gran got home from work, he'd run around making sure she had her dinner, and then her cup of tea afterwards. So maybe, tireless Mr Kemp, maybe he represents a certain type of working class man who, when they lose their job, whether through redundancy, retirement, or thermonuclear war, they just can't quite sit still. They must continue to be productive, to be of use. So Ruth uh, chooses to leave the relative safety of home to go and find Jimmy, and our four-minute segment starts with her terrible odyssey across ruined Sheffield. And on her way to try and find Jimmy, she sees some very distressing sights. Now, uh, locals in Sheffield will know what kind of journey it would be. Um, I need to resort to Google Maps and see that a walk from Rustling's Road, where Ruth lived, up to Hoxley Road in Hillsborough, where the Kemps lived, takes about one hour for a pedestrian. But we can add a bit more time to that journey, what with all the destruction. So as Ruth makes her way north, uh, wrapped in a blanket, that's all she has to protect her from the fallout, a blanket, she endures a stream of absolutely horrendous sights. Initially, she's horrified at what she sees. She grimaces, she cries. At one point, she throws her head back in despair and seems to just howl in grief. I say she seems to howl because her reactions are delivered in silence. In this segment, we hear a few disjointed calls from the people she sees, but the main sound is the desolate howl of the wind. This is, after all, where dialogue starts to break down and vanish from the film. But Ruth's reactions, uh, ranging from obvious grief and distress to, by the end of her walk, some kind of stunned resignation and acceptance, it seems to show the trajectory of disaster syndrome. A very sped-up trajectory, of course. We've talked about disaster syndrome in previous episodes, um, but studies of human response to disasters often show people almost, after the initial turmoil and uproar, people almost seem to quietly accept their fate, as though... The enormity of the situation is simply too much to take in. And so they retreat, psychologically, into a stunned and silent state. On Ruth's journey, she seems to go through various stages, arriving, finally, at the classic symptom of disaster syndrome, the state of stunned apathy. As for the things she sees on her walk, well, if you've seen Threads, you can hardly forget them. This is where many of the film's most notorious images come from. 
And we know from my interview with Mick Jackson that he knew that memorable images were the best way to communicate the absolute horror of nuclear war. We see a woman calling again and again for Mandy. Have you seen her Mandy? And she staggers towards Ruth. Then a dirty wee boy in an anorak. He comes stumbling towards Ruth, crying again and again for his mum. We see a bearded man gnawing like an animal on a packet of Wall's bacon. We see dead cats and a dead dog. We see several burned bodies and they are lying on their backs. Uh, it's often hard to make it what posture they're lying in and you have to, if you're doing the four minute segments like I am, you have to pause and really try and zoom in and study what's going on. And some of the burned bodies we see here and in other points of the film, they're lying on their backs, as far as I can see, with their arms lifted and kind of clutched in front of the chest. Now, it sounds horrible, and I hate to bring real life into this, but there was an image on Twitter of burned bodies um, at the beginning of the war in Ukraine. It was when the TV tower in Kyiv was attacked, and they were lying with their arms in that same clenched, raised position. And someone asked, why? Why does a burned body seem to go into that posture? And without going into too much awful detail... It is to do with the, the tremendous heat of the flame, which burns away the skin and then causes the exposed muscle to contract and pull itself into this particular shape. It is known in this context as the pugilistic attitude because the position of the arms, being seemingly held up in front of the face, resembles a boxer with his fists raised to defend himself. So yes, during Ruth's journey, we see several blackened corpses um, in the background. And at the point where Ruth's horror reaches the stage where she throws her head back and silently cries out, we also see a burned corpse in the rubble with its teeth bared, its teeth perfectly white against the black skin. And this corpse baring its teeth, it seems to mirror Ruth's distress as she throws her head back and cries out. It seems that the corpse is doing the same. The living and the dead both locked in agony together. And then as Ruth comes to the end of her horrible odyssey, she encounters one of the most disturbing images in Threads. A woman with a ragged ginger hair is frantically cradling a baby to her breast. The baby has been burned black, but is dressed in relatively clean baby clothes. So are we to assume then that the mother, if this is the mother, has found her baby's body in the rubble and gently cleaned it and clothed it? Perhaps as a mark of respect or more likely due to how she's cradling the baby's body as part of some desperate pretense that the baby is still alive. She's cradling the body, almost jiggling the body. You know, it's not a, a gentle 
soothing cradling motion. It's just, it seems like a nervous motion. So she's more like jiggling the body against her chest. And as she looks up at Ruth, she has very wild, stark staring eyes. And Ruth seems to gently, nervously try to step past her as though skirting past a rabid dog hoping it won't leap at your throat. Now throughout Ruth's journey we hear in the background a low roaring sound. Now that might stand for emptiness, desolation, ruin. It might be supposed to symbolise a banshee's wail for the dead and the dying. But I think of it as the last dying gasp of the firestorm, which has just ruined Sheffield. In a previous episode, we looked at firestorms, you'll find that in the archive, and it included eyewitness reports from Dresden and Hamburg, where one survivor recalled the terrible sound of the firestorm. Obviously a firestorm is no ordinary fire, so it doesn't just roar and crackle as an ordinary fire might. This person likened its sound to an old church organ, a massive old organ where every key was being pressed down at once, producing some furious, insistent, grinding roar which would not fade out. So I think the wind sound here is the is representing the last dying embers of the firestorm. But maybe we're being too fancy. Maybe it's simply, you know, there's a technical reason for it. And that's because dialogue has now begun to fade from the film, to drop out of the film entirely. Another thread of civilization which has been snapped. And so maybe the director thought, well, we need some kind of sound up there on screen, so let's put up the, the eerie wind sound. Maybe that's all it is. But to me, it's represents the dying away of the firestorm. We then have a very short scene uh, where Mr. and Mrs. Beckett are killed, although their deaths happen off-screen. They are huddled down in their basement when they hear the floor creak above them. And yes, looters have crept into the house, perhaps guessing, uh, rightly so in this case, that a big Victorian villa is going to be well stocked and down in the basement Mr Beckett uh, always so stern and assured and capable he glances up at the creaking ceiling and his bottom lip trembles he has kept the British stiff upper lip thus far and now his last scene features a trembling bottom lip he is after all just another frightened person. Our next scene kicks off with those glowing blue subtitles on screen. It says, 3,000 megaton exchange, 100 million tonnes of smoke produced, 500 million tonnes of dust lifted into the atmosphere. We are now talking about nuclear winter. Here's a clip. Hanging in the atmosphere, the clouds of debris shut out the sun's heat and light. Across large areas of the northern hemisphere, it starts to get dark. It starts to get cold. 
In the centres of large land masses like America or Russia, the temperature drop may be severe, as much as 25 degrees centigrade. Even in Britain, within days of the attack, it could fall to freezing or below for long, dark periods. Well, if we're talking nuclear winter, I'm very glad to refer you to my podcast archive, where you'll find an interview I did with Dr. Steve Arnold, an expert in atmospheric chemistry, who explains what nuclear winter is and how it would work. So here's a clip where he tells us what nuclear winter is. In theory, of course, it hasn't happened yet. The idea is that after a nuclear conflict, um, the kind of nuclear weapons being used and the resulting firestorms uh, and massive amount of material smoke that would be put into the atmosphere, the idea is that this could have a a kind of global scale climatic effect. Um, And that effect would be to create a kind of sustained, prolonged and severe reduction in, in temperatures at the surface. Um, so that is kind of phrased nuclear winter. Um, so the, you know, the nuclear is the cause, I guess, and then the winter is the outcome. So the idea is this is this prolonged reduction in temperature. The mechanism really depends on, on certain constituents of the smoke. So it's important to say that what we're talking about here really is the firestorm. So it's the, it's the fires, you know, the huge fires that likely would be started in, in many urban regions and also kind of, you know, in woodland forest regions as a result of the, the nuclear weapons themselves. So you can imagine if you have the nuclear exchange and then you have these massive fires occurring, this would release a kind of unprecedented amount of smoke into the atmosphere on a scale that we just we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that smoke is the, one of the main constituents of that smoke is something that scientists call um, black carbon. But basically, you can think of it as like soot, um, you know, smoke, essentially. Um, and the black carbon bits of this smoke can absorb um, radiation from the sun, sunlight very effectively. So what happens is, as you just said, in, in the lower atmosphere, there would be rain that would be removing some of this smoke from the fires. Uh, and that's the main way that smoke is removed, really, from the atmosphere. Um, but because of this special constituent called black carbon, as that smoke rises into the atmosphere, it can absorb sunlight and that can warm it further. And as it warms, of course, as we all know, warm air rises and it rises further and further in the atmosphere. And what's unusual about, or what scientists think is unusual about these effects for, in particular, these really large firestorms, is that you'd have a lot of this material in the atmosphere that could actually rise really high into the atmosphere. So much, much higher than you see for standard forest fires, for example, and even much, much higher than we see when we have these big kind of volcanic eruptions. So when this smoke gets really high into the atmosphere, into a layer that we call the stratosphere, which is, is above us um, from about 12 or 15 kilometers upwards, um, then this can have really big effects because it can spread out a long way um, geographically uh, and it can reflect and scatter a lot of the incoming sunlight. And it's that kind of that scattering and reduction of sunlight that's making it down to the Earth's surface that causes this severe cooling effect. Of course, the thing to remember is that the theory of nuclear winter had just come into public consciousness when Threads was being made. People often criticise the day after for not featuring it. But you can't blame our pals and Lawrence. The theory just hadn't broken through by then. We are now on Monday 6th of June, 10 days after the attack. Ruth's terrible journey has brought her to the Kemp household. No one there but Mrs Kemp, who is dead. 
slumped over against the wall in her refuge. Eyes open, staring, forever waiting for good old Mr Kemp to come back with that drink of water. One um, quite poignant detail is that uh, her corpse is still wearing its pinny. Um, I don't know what other word there is for pinny. I would call it a pinny. And overall, perhaps, the the little nylon coats or covering that um, women would wear, some women would wear when doing their housework to keep their clothes clean. So she is still wearing her overall, just as Mr Beckett, with his lip trembling in the basement, still had his shirt on, neatly buttoned. Everyone is still in the costume of their class. Ruth steps into the house, uh, sees Mrs Kemp's corpse and doesn't even flinch. She just looks down on her because Ruth is still in this state of total stunned apathy. So the sight of her would-be mother-in-law, lying slumped and burned and dead, doesn't even cause a flicker on Ruth's face. All she does is glance around the room and she sees one of Jimmy's uh, bird's books. You know, he was a keen bird watcher. He had his aviary in the garden. And she picks up a battered old copy of The Handbook of Foreign Birds and she takes that with her, of course, as a, a memento, a reminder of Jimmy. By this time, Ruth has acquired a scarf which is wrapped around her mouth to offer her a tiny bit of extra protection against fallout or perhaps it's been worn to protect her against the smell from all the corpses that are piling up. We can still hear that howling wind in the background. Although now it represents cold, now we're entering into the age of nuclear winter, that wind is now a freezing icy wind and not the dying breath of the firestorm. And her four minutes ends there, and as is usual with these episodes, I am always quite glad when I see the timer tick over four minutes. So if you're listening, I thank you for staying with the podcast. Um, I took a few weeks off, as I explained earlier, to get the edits done on the book. And so if you're still here, still listening, still subscribed, I thank you. And I thank all the new patrons who've signed up over the past few weeks. I lost a few patrons, which I suppose is understandable. I knew I was taking a risk when I let the podcast go quiet for a few weeks. So a special thank you to those who have stuck with me. And to my new patrons, let me give a quick thanks to Hugo Frenchy, Clockwork Monkey, Ian Stead, Patrick Calvey, and an increase in monthly pledges from Sophie MacDonald, Alex Coke, and from Helen Walsh. And thank you also to Mark Brooker and Michelle Young. And just as I was typing this, a new patron popped up, Robert Scanlon. Thank you, Robert. So thank you, everyone, every listener, every patron who has stuck with me and who's still here listening. A special thanks, of course, to the patrons. You fund this podcast. You keep it free from annoying ads. You help me buy research materials, archive subscriptions and equipment. Um, And I thank every one of you. If you want to sign up to Patreon, this is the time to do it. My podcasting will be stepping up a gear. There'll be more new bonus episodes released. And I'm using some of my Patreon funds to buy a teleprompter so that I can start putting these podcasts out on YouTube. And I don't mean just, you know, uploading the audio, which I've tried in the past, but no one listens to that. It only gets uh, maybe 150 views on YouTube. It's hardly worth the effort. I think if you're watching on YouTube, you want to see the person speak. You don't want to just listen. So 
a teleprompter will let me read out the script that I've written here on YouTube. And on top of all that, I will be writing a proposal for my second book. I've already begun all the preliminary work on that. Maybe it's a bit arrogant of me to do that, but the first one isn't out yet. But, you know, why wait? Uh, shall I give you a hint what my proposed second book will be about? Uh, I think you know. Yep, nuclear war. <laughs> so if you've um, considered joining my Patreon, please do take a look at it. There are lots of different levels from £1 up to, uh, I think, 30 30 pounds, and you get different um, rewards attached to each one. You can join at any time and you can cancel at any time. You're not tied into anything, which is one of the worst things ever. So please take a look, if I've persuaded you, <laughs> at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember that you can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or Facebook as Nuclear Britain. There's also my website, juliemcdowell.com. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to record a bonus podcast episode for my patrons those who pay at £3 and above get access to all the bonus episodes so a new one will be going out tomorrow for patrons so I will bring this to a close now thank you everyone for listening thank you to all my patrons and I will be back next week